0: Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Back when I was in community college, I was a journalism major uh, for a time. I think I was about 19 years old at the time, and our... um, our our group that put out the the newspaper every other week decided we wanted to try a new venture and put together uh, a magazine each semester. And uh, for this magazine, uh, the first edition, I wrote two articles. One was about skydiving. And yes, uh, that is me in that picture jumping out of a perfectly good airplane as they say. The other article I wrote was about geoglyphs. Now, geoglyphs are massive drawings that were etched into the ground uh, by the ancient Cahuilla Indians who had lived in the, the deserts around that region, the Riverside Imperial County region. There was a, had been a, a huge freshwater lake Thousands of years ago. And that, that lake shrank and now uh, it's where the Salton Sea is. Now there are literally hundreds of these massive geoglyphs in the desert, but they are nearly impossible to identify unless you're flying over them in a plane or perhaps jumping out of a plane. My primary resource for this article on geoglyphs was a um, a crusty professor of archeology, span J. Von Werloff. And he took me on a couple tours of the desert and I vividly recall this one moment when uh, Von Werloff bent down and picked up a fairly small rock And he was showing me how on the side that he picked up that we could see, it was really dark, almost black. But when you flipped it over to the side that had not been exposed to the sun, it was very light, really a normal rock color. Sun tanning a rock takes thousands of years And von Worloff explained to me that these blackened rocks were known as desert pavement. One way to chart what has happened in the arid desert regions is to look for variations in the desert pavement. So, for example, uh, there are tank tracks in the deserts from when the, the time when the troops were there training uh, to fight Rommel's forces in Africa during World War II. And, and you could see uh, the tank tracks clearly etched into the desert pavement. Now, after showing me this small, uh, well-tanned rock, von Werloff bent down and put that rock exactly where and how it had been laying for thousands of years before he picked it up. And by replacing that rock exactly where it had been, he explained that rainfall would then not erode uh, the historical record that this small rock might eventually reveal. Well, a couple of weeks in my, ago in my sermon, I pointed out how Jesus uses images of, of small things to talk about the disciple community. And here in our reading this morning, he again speaks of small things. This is our reading from Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come. But woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending the sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you, may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Let me repeat One verse, the Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, if you have just an infinitesimally small amount of faith, a disproportionately large tree with deep roots could be manipulated to do your bidding. Wow. Who has that kind of faith? Well, actually, you do. But we'll get to that in a moment. Now... Taking notice of the context of this parable is so important. Notice that the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith right after Jesus has given them two very difficult teachings. In in verses 1 and 2, Jesus had said, it would be better for you to be cast into the sea with a millstone, a hundred pound weight around your neck... Then if you cause a disciple with less spiritual maturity to stumble, Jesus then goes on to tell his disciples to forgive even the most intractable sinner, as often as he asks, even if he sins against you seven times a day. So so is it any wonder that the disciples have this request? Increase our faith. It's going to take a lot of faith to do those things. Isn't that a reasonable ask? Without an abundance of faith, how could we forgive the person who repeatedly sins against us? Seven times in the same day. I mean... I can barely muster the courage to tell someone who offends me what they've done that, that causes me hurt, whether it's a rumor I've heard or something else. And frankly, I, you know, nursing my victimization can, can sometimes feel so much more satisfying than forgiving somebody who has sinned against me. And and, and I have to say, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one where that's true. So, responding to this reasonable request, Jesus says something that in effect is, if you had just a smidgen of faith, my teachings would not, seems so daunting to you. But here's where this parable becomes difficult to interpret because there are two ways to interpret what Jesus is saying here. The first is to hear Jesus saying with exasperation, if you had just a little faith, which you obviously don't, what I'm saying to you right now would not be that big of a deal. As one biblical scholar asserts, the conditional statement in verse 6, if then, is structured in the Greek in such a way that we can tell that a contrary to fact situation is being described. And that's the way I think we've heard this parable interpreted. You just need to have more faith than you do because you don't have enough. But another biblical scholar disagrees. He writes, the Greek language has two types of if-then clauses. The first is the contrary to fact. Uh, uh, condition, which I just described, and those which uh, describe a condition according to fact. So, for example, if Jesus is our Lord, and he is, then we should serve him. Because the conditional clause in verse 6 is this second type, it's correct, perhaps, to translate this as, if you had just a smidgen of faith, and you do. If this is the case, then Jesus is not reprimanding his disciples for the absence or lack of faith. Instead, he is affirming the amount of faith that the disciples already have, And he is inviting them to live out the full possibilities of that faith. Now I have to say, I find it more than a little ironic that one of the smallest words in this passage, the word if can make a great deal of difference in how we will interpret Jesus' words. If we just knew for sure what Jesus meant by if, then we could interpret the passage correctly. But to add some confusion perhaps... I wonder if we really need to know what Jesus meant when he said that word, if. Interpreting the passage both ways is valid in our Protestant tradition because our Protestant tradition affirms that God makes every valiant attempt to communicate with us through the words of scripture. And in this case then, we really can have it both ways. Let me give you an example of what I mean by using uh, the illustration of my golf game. If I make a few pars and only uh, a few bogeys, then I will score 90 or better on the golf course. This if can be understood both ways. Usually the if is a condition contrary to fact because I'm just not that good a golfer anymore. But because I have broken 90 in the past, the if is also a conditional statement according to fact. Both instances of if are true in this case at the same time. And when I talk about the if of scoring 90 or better or 90 or lower, it reminds me of my aspiration to play better than I normally do. At the same time, it is an affirmation that I've already played that well before. So here's the question. Was was Jesus smart enough to mean if In both ways? As a message of aspiration and as a word of affirmation? I certainly think so. As an affirmation, we hear Jesus assuring us that whatever faith we may not have, our lack of faith, it's not necessarily a fatal flaw in our discipleship. Because even a small amount of faith is a really big deal. We don't need to be perfect, without any doubts, zealous, true believers in order to serve God. Even a small amount of faith is a formidable amount of faith in a faithless world. Rather than denigrating ourselves for our lack of faith in comparison to other people we perceive to be spiritual giants or spiritual gurus, we can be confident that God can accomplish great things through us whatever stage of faith we are at. But, as an aspiration, we, like the apostles, will still need to find courage to act in ways that are consistent with our faith, to have an aim to have a greater faith still. For some of that, us, that will be mean being more forgiving of those mean and rotten people who have sinned against us or those who we deem to be morally defective in any way. An increased faith may also mean becoming more like the slave at the end of our text, being more dutiful in contributing generously of our time and our, our talent, our, our financial resources, whatever. But it also means doing our discipleship, as verses 7 through 10 uh, make clear, without grumbling about who's not doing their share or who's doing it wrong, and, and without thinking that just in doing our duty, we somehow merit uh, special uh, blessings, or, or kudos, or, or affirmation. You know, it is a misguided corruption uh, of, uh, of Christian doctrine to say that our acts of faith somehow generate extra blessings, or... or uh, for us, spiritual or material. I mean, we, we may indeed feel blessed by God when we live out of our faith, but, but those are just gifts from God. They're not pranks for being, uh, I'm sorry, they're not perks for being good enough or, or smart enough or spiritual enough to act in ways that are already consistent with discipleship, that are consistent with the faith that we claim. Paul conveys this in in more than one of his letters. He says that we can only boast of what God has done through us. Humbly admitting that it is not us, but it is God at work through us. Those of you who are getting our daily text... uh, Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of the quotes that we sent out recently was, is that humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It is about thinking about yourself less. It's less self-focus. And my friends, all of this is really good news. Because as a church, we are a body of people who have faith to do some really amazing things. And as a church, we are gifted to be of real service to God. We don't don't have to say, I don't have enough faith. We do. But notice, I do want to notice, uh, that the parable does not mention any time frame for moving a, a deeply rooted mulberry bush into the sea, just so the faith that can move mountains or trees is also a faith which can boldly pray for peace and justice and mercy and righteousness. Because the seed of faith that God plants will bear fruit. Maybe not on our Time schedule, but certainly in God's eternal time. So we're not just a church. I think sometimes we're actually like a mustard seed moving company. Because even as God's kingdom seems far from coming into our neighborhoods uh, on earth as it is in heaven, we do have enough faith that it will be so. And when that transformation takes place, the world will sit at a common table, sharing a common meal, because competition and, and racism and, and war and and violence, and and evil, all that now separates us from God will be no more. Because we had a little faith that it would be so. You know, here's what I think. If a rock can get a suntan, We have to believe that God's reign of peace and justice is not impossible for God. But we do need to have a little faith. Just a little faith. And you do. Amen.